1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 17 uh, of chapter 2 through verse 5 of chapter 3. And then we'll pray and get into it. But we, brethren, have been taken away for you for a short time in presence but not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you Even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, so that no one uh, should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation. And just as it happened, as you know. For this reason, uh, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain." And Father, I pray as we uh, look at this letter again, as we uh, see some more about what you inspired Paul to write to the church of the Thessalonians, that God, we would have your wisdom to know how this applies to our lives. In fact, Father, I pray you would, by your Holy Spirit, teach us what it means to endure to the end. Lord, give us that grace that we need to be motivated, to be hopeful, and to press on in endurance. Lord, you know the difficulties each one of us here is facing, things that maybe nobody else knows about, things that that maybe wouldn't make sense to anyone else, but Lord, you know the things that tempt us away from enduring. Lord, would you meet us in this place? Would you help us to trust you to endure? Please, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. So Jesus had said to his disciples, he had really prepared his disciples to endure difficulties. He wanted to make sure that those who would follow him would know it wouldn't be an easy road and endurance would be necessary. In fact, in in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus said plainly, as hard as this is to hear, he said, you will be hated for all by my namesake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And so Jesus didn't mince words. He didn't sort of hold back the fact that it's difficult to follow him. And not everybody likes the fact that we become Christians and decide to follow him. It's not an easy road. It's a road that requires endurance. And so what Paul is is doing in writing this section is he's, one, he's dealing with the fact that he's probably getting accused uh, of being maybe maybe not so true of an apostle. Maybe he's not so great as everyone wants to make him out to be because he hadn't gone back to Thessalonia. And so basically they're thinking, okay, um, well, maybe Paul doesn't really care. Maybe he isn't as trustworthy as we thought he was. Because if you remember, the Thessalonians, they're going through some pretty serious affliction. I mean, they're really, from, from almost day one when they became Jesus followers, they began to suffer for it. And so it's really not an easy road for them. If you remember from uh, the beginning of this letter, we talked about how this church was only a matter of weeks or months old. 
So we're talking about a group of people, some of whom were Gentiles who became Jews and then realized that Jesus was the Messiah, some who were Gentiles who heard the gospel and became Christians, and a few Jews had become Christians. But this mainly Gentile church, they don't really know that much about the Scripture. They don't really know that much about who Jesus is, except for that what they've been invested in by Paul for maybe a matter of weeks, Paul and his team, and then now what they have, their leaders are showing them. And so you can imagine, when, when you don't know that much, you don't have that much experience in walking with Jesus, and then you suffer greatly for Jesus, you're going to be tempted to think, what's the deal? You're going to be tempted not to endure anymore. I think this is important for us to, to recognize because I think sometimes we, we don't want to admit how tempted we are to give up. We don't want to actually be honest with each other about the fact that sometimes we're tempted just to say, I'm going to check the whole thing and do what I want. Th these things come into our mind. These things creep into our heart. We're tempted just to go, is it even worth it? Because the, the truth is, is that we, we, we see in Jesus something that, that really answers questions that no one else does. But the truth is, following him is a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. So when Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved, he's not sort of putting a condition on your salvation. He's saying, listen, do you realize endurance is a requirement? Do you realize this is... This is part and parcel of following after me. It's going to require endurance. It's not going to be an easy road. And so Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, wanting to encourage their endurance. And encouraging their endurance, we're going to learn some stuff about how our endurance develops. Because we don't grow in endurance by accident. Last year I ran my first and only 5K. I probably won't ever, no, it was, a ten, it was a 10K. I can't remember. It was too long. That's all it was. All that was it. it was too long. And so I trained for about four months. I'm a big guy. Running is not something that I would like to do unless I'm being chased. And so, man, I'll tell you what, my knees were killing me. My lungs were burning. It was a difficult thing. But I'm so glad that I did train because on the day, I was able to meet the goals of just, I want to finish the race and I don't want to throw up in front of anybody. And I met those goals. And in the process, we, we were blessed to raise myself and the other young lads who were way ahead of me, uh, raised several hundred dollars for a great charity. But the truth was, the endurance didn't just kind of come by accident. There had to be an intentionality. There had to be a purposeful effort to grow in endurance if I was going to actually finish that race. And so really, in, in a real sense, this is kind of what Paul's wanting to encourage the Thessalonians, and I believe the Holy Spirit wants to encourage us in is, how do we develop endurance? How do we learn to endure? So I'm going to give you three main things. If you have a little A5 sheet near you, you, you have these things. And the first one is this, is if we're going to endure, we need to be hoping in everlasting love. Everlasting love. Now, what do I mean by everlasting love? Well, in, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet said this to God's people. To, to Israel. He said, the Lord to, appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. So that when Jesus says in John 3.16, these famous words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son, speaking of himself, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He's talking about that God so has an everlasting love for those who believe that anyone who will believe will have eternal life. 
So this term everlasting love describes the love that God has always been and the love that God offers to us in Jesus. The love that's ours when we trust Him. And the reality is, this is maybe the most important bit you can hear today, is that you will not endure unless your hope is in that love. Remember, to hope, we kind of use that in modern English. We kind of use hope as in, well, I hope this happens. It's kind of like wishful thinking. But hope in a biblical context, hope as the word is used, the word, what the word really means, it means an expectation of good. You expect good things to happen. And so when we talk about hoping in everlasting love, is that we're expecting a good future because we know there's a good God who has this love towards us. And that's what motivates us to endure. So Paul says, look at verse 17 again. Paul says, we brethren, we wanted to come to you. He says, we've been away for a short time in presence, but not in heart, he says. And we endeavored eagerly, more eagerly to to see you face to face with great desire, he says. In verse 18, he says, we wanted to come to you, but we were hindered by Satan. We'll talk about satanic hindrance at the end. But the point is, is that Paul was, was really really disappointed. He really wanted to see them face to face. He had this heart that he loved these people. We read that in, in chapter 2, didn't we, earlier, where Paul says, we, you became so dear to us, we wanted to share our own lives with you. And so Paul loved these people. He wanted to be with these people, and he was disappointed that he couldn't be with these people. And the implication as well is that the Thessalonians were disappointed that Paul hadn't come back to visit them. And this is an important thing to think about. Because when we talk about hoping in everlasting love, when we talk about having our hope in, our our expectation of good, set in who God is and what God's promised to do, that everlasting love can actually encourage and result in present disappointment. And that's not a bad thing. We should be disappointed with certain things. Let, Let me explain what I mean. Oftentimes what happens is we really wish that we could have our best life now, which is why the book of that title sold million. It's a heresy, by the way, but that's what I sold it. We think, I, I want my best life now. If, if, I can just, if I can just have just the right marriage and just the right family and just the right career, just the right church, then everything will be fine. If I live in the right neighborhood... And so we set our expectation on things less than God's everlasting love. And because we set our expectation on that, guess what we are? Disappointed. That's a good thing. It's a good thing because if we can be satisfied in those things, it's a clear indicator that we actually don't know God's everlasting love. One of the things that... um, uh, I, I think that has been a freeing thing for me is to, to realize that all the things that I longed for as a young man, the things that really, if I'm honest, motivated me to become a Christian, all the things that I mentioned there, I wanted, I grew up by an American standards, quite poor. And so I, I, I didn't want to be poor. And, and my parents divorced at a young age, so I, I wanted to have a, a healthy, happy marriage. And, you know, our family was pretty close, but with the junk that we had involved in there, there's a lot of dysfunctionality as well. So I wanted a healthy, happy family. So I wanted, I, I wanted the American dream. I wanted the nice little house. I wanted the nice family. I wanted to surf on the weekends. That's the Californian dream, but you know. <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. And, and the funny thing is, what I saw was that a lot of the, the friends that I had that were, 
even just nominally religious, had some connection to Jesus, they all had some, they had better families. There was more stability there. And so I thought, okay, I want this. And so when God got my attention and I knew I was a sinner, I needed a Savior, I said, wow, if I need God's forgiveness and I can have God's forgiveness, and that seems to lead to this, all this other stuff that I want, I'm in. And guess what happened? I got all the stuff. I really did. We've, we've lived pretty much, well, with the exception of the first couple of years, didn't we, babe? We live, we've lived in nice houses. We lived in some roach motels a couple of times, but... Um, Basically, after a, a period of early marriage, from a relatively young age, we lived in decent homes. We have a great marriage. I have wonderful kids. And guess what? They're disappointing. Probably not as disappointing as I am to them, but still, they're disappointing. Because the thing is, is that what I thought was the goal, the ultimate, was actually just a pointer to God's everlasting love. And so this is, this is what I mean. These guys are disappointed. Man, we, we believe that this God, this God of, the, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Thessalonians are believing he's our God, he's our Savior, he's the one we trust, and we see his love through Paul and his team, but Paul and his team aren't around anymore. It's disappointing. And Paul's like, wow, we see the work of God in these people's lives, and it's blowing our minds what God's doing in their lives. These young Christians are just on fire for Jesus, even though they're getting radically persecuted. But we can't get to them. And it's disappointing. See, because disappointing, disappointment can be a good thing because it reminds us of, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We haven't seen him face to face yet. This is what Paul gets to towards the end of that section. He says in verse... In verse 19, he says, For what is our joy, or what is our hope, our expectation of good, or our joy, our crown of rejoicing? He says, Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? He says, For you are our glory and joy. Think about this. Paul is saying, as a minister of the gospel, someone who planted this church, Paul says, the thing that gets me most excited, the thing that overflows my heart with joy, is imagining you standing before Jesus and being eternally in love with him forever. Paul says, that makes me happy, man. My, your joy before Christ is my joy even now. What a great heart. Isn't that a great heart? I mean, we should have the heart for each other, shouldn't we? But Paul also says, listen, this isn't going to happen. He, he gives really clear a, a picture. He says, this is going to happen only when you're in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again. Remember, one of the themes throughout 1 and 2 Thessalonians is the second coming of Jesus as a, a good and hopeful thing. And so he's saying, this is what I'm looking forward for, for with you. Because, yeah, this everlasting love is hoping in this great love that we're going to experience in its fullness when we see Jesus face to face. It results in a present disappointment, but also, listen, it guarantees, listen, it guarantees a future joy. Now, God wants us to experience joy now. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. So there's a joy that we can ex experience now. In fact, there's a joy that I think that we only barely taste. I think we, it's a whole other Bible study, but I think we forfeit the joy that God really wants us to have because we don't take the time to, to just be with him and think about who he is and enjoy him and worship him like we should. Again, I'm preaching to myself. But there's this reality that th this joy, this perfect joy, not happiness based on circumstances, but 
But perfect, ultimate joy is going to be in the presence of God when we see Him face to face. This is what we're looking forward to. This is what motivates us to go on. How do we move forward when life, when circumstances, only seem to provoke unhappiness? How do we even have joy or even a measure of joy when life seems to be full of unhappiness? Remember that we're not there yet, but we're going to be. This is what causes us to endure. I know that I don't love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I hope that doesn't, isn't a scandalous thing for you to hear. It's just a fact. I know I could love God so much more than I do. I know I should love God so much more than I do. But you know what keeps me moving forward and wanting to grow my love for God? Is I have an expectation that when I see Him face to face and His work's done with me, I am going to love Him with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength. No hesitation, no competition, nothing fighting for the affections of my heart. I'm going to see him face to face. I'm going to chuck my crown off my bald head at his feet, and I'm going to say, Lord, you and you alone are worthy. It's going to happen. And I know I don't love people the way I should. Even those closest to me, I don't love them the way I should. But you know what? When I see him face to face, when I stand before Jesus and the work that he's begun in me is finished and complete, then I know I'm going to be with the saints, not just worshiping Jesus, but enjoying a fellowship that I can't even imagine yet. It's going to be awesome. This motivates us to move forward to that. See, when this is our hope, when our hope is, our expectation is in that everlasting love that's been given to us through Christ, when our hope is in that, that motivates us to press on in every other area of our life. We want to be better employees because we want to love the people that we serve. We want to be better spouses because we want to love our spouse. We want to be better servants in our churches because we want to be better brothers and sisters. One of the things Sarah and I often remind ourselves of is the fact that we're husband and wife till death do us part, but we're brother and sister forever. Amen. We want to encourage each other in that. What motivates that? This everlasting love. Dis disappointment really comes from an unmet expectation. We, we see this all throughout the scripture. In Proverbs chapter uh, 13, it says this, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is the tree of life. Interesting, tree of life also is the phrase used to describe access to God in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Psalm 13, too, says this. You see that the psalmist says this. You see this over throughout the psalms, but Psalm 13 says, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? In other words, the psalmist is saying, I know there's supposed to be something better than this, and I'm not there yet. In the book of Revelation, we have this picture of those who have been martyred for their faith, and they're around the throne of God. It says, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? Why do we long for something better? Because the gospel promises us something better. Do you understand? This is our hope. This is our hope. This is what causes, motivates us to endure. 
There's this great picture at the end of, uh, of the book of Revelation when Jesus comes back. In fact, I would encourage you, if you haven't ever read it before or it's been a long time, go home for homework and read Revelation chapter 20 through chapter 22. See how it ends. <laughs> See how God's plan, His story for all creation ends. It's glorious. And this is what he says, yep, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's, this is from the front of God, okay? So this is really God yelling this out, or Jesus yelling this out with enthusiasm. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne says, look, I am making all, everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Listen, the picture that the, the scriptures give us of what our future is, is not a picture of sort of a numb oneness. Or a picture of that, that you know, we just cease to have consciousness and there's no more. The picture that we're promised in the gospel. What we're promised in this gospel is a reality where we see God, the creator of the universe, face to face, and we're able to fellowship with that God with no interruption because of what Jesus has done, and that God himself will touch your cheek and wipe away your tear. <laughs> uh, we, we can't even fathom this. Yet this is what so clearly is promised. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. Look, if it wasn't true, I'd tell you. This is, what, this is what I'm going to the cross for. Listen, folks, do you believe this? Is this your expectation of good? Is your expectation of good just simply what you might experience now if you're a good Christian? Or is your expectation of good what the gospel actually promises us in the everlasting God of, uh, love of God? So if we're going to develop endurance, we're going to have to be hoping in that everlasting love. Now, moving on in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Second thing is we're going to need to be receiving ongoing discipleship. Paul says, because we really wanted to be with you, we couldn't stand any longer, verse 1. We couldn't endure the fact that we weren't away. We needed fresh news. So he says, so we thought it good to be left in Athens. That's Paul and the rest of the team. Probably because Paul had a, a mark on his head. He thought, if I go there and I'm killed, the ministry's over. It's kind of pointless. Paul wasn't afraid to die or suffer, but he just knew that would be not practically or wise. So he sends Timothy. Timothy's a great guy. I'm always praying for Timothy's, man. This guy could be completely trustworthy to do whatever Paul wanted to do. Glorious man of God. And he said, we thought it'd be good to be left in Athens alone, verse 2, and sent Timothy, notice what they call Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. So Paul makes it clear, look, when we sent Timothy to you, um, we sent Timothy to you as a servant and a laborer. Now this is important. Because, you know, God isn't so much sending Timothys, though obviously when God sends people to, calls people to, to lead churches and pastor churches, that there's some of this ministry going on. But as we talk often in Servants Church, God calls all of us as Jesus followers to help each other follow Jesus. So we are all called to that business of discipling one another. You guys get that, right? You know that I say this all the time. We're called to disciple one another. And in the same way that Paul sent Timothy, I, you might say, I'm sending you, God's sending you, God's sending us 
to come alongside one another as servants and laborers. The idea of a servant is one who is ministering under the will of somebody else. All right, God, you're the master. Jesus, you're the master. I want to be the servant. How do you want me to serve these people? I'm not going to dictate the terms. You dictate the terms. As a laborer, what's a laborer do? He works hard. She works hard. There's a, there's, there is something laborious about our relationships with each other in disciple making. It's difficult. But there's a reality. This is how, what he does. Paul says, Timothy, this way, not just to give them information, but to be an example. But it says in the, verse, the, the rest of verse 2, he sent them for this reason, to establish you and encourage you concerning the faith. In other words, Paul, Paul sent Timothy to establish and encourage. To establish means this. Listen, it literally means to teach them to build upon the grace that came with Jesus. Established, the idea of to be established is to be set firm. It's like to be built on a stable foundation. And so the idea is he's saying, Paul, Paul's saying, go back, remind them of the grace of God that came with Jesus. Remind them that that's the thing that they're resting on, God's grace towards them. They have God's everlasting love because God has saved them by grace through Jesus. The idea of encourage here is the idea of to come alongside and to demonstrate that grace that came with Jesus. Because the gospel is this, it's good news, and because it's good, it has to be demonstrated. People need to see what it looks like. What does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to trust in his grace? How does that affect how we look at life? How does that affect how we deal with relationships? How does it affect how we deal with everyday things? The point is this, Paul's sending them back and a big aspect of ongoing discipleship is us being established and encouraged in the grace of God. That's our foundation. That's our stability. You can't build farther out than that. You know how a foundation works. You build a foundation and what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to build on top of that straight up, not out way over here. So that the weight is on that foundation. This is what the scripture says. The author of Hebrews says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about by various and strange doctrines, the author says, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. Listen, if you're freaking out about, I'm not doing enough for God, I need to get better about doing stuff for God, there could be, not, not always, but there could be a sense that you're actually not building on grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor that we can only have through faith in Jesus. Grace is God's divine enabling that we can only have through faith in Jesus. We can only know we're right with God because he's gracious and he's given us grace through Jesus. We can only find the strength to do what he wants us to do by receiving it through faith as grace, as undeserved favor. This is what's going to bring stability to your heart. This is what's going to allow you and me to be honest with each other about the fact we don't always want to endure. We can be honest about that because there's grace for us as those who struggle. There's grace for us as those who get weary. This is why the scripture has exhortations like, don't grow weary in well-doing. He's not, it's, not like a forbidden, it's not like forbidding the feeling of weariness. It's saying, don't let that be control you. Don't let that be where you end. Press on. Keep going. We need to continually grow in these things. We need to continually be reminded about God's grace, 
about how sufficient God's grace is, about how available God's grace is. We have to remind each other of this. Especially when we're going through hard times, because if you look at verses 3 and 4, Timothy was also sent to remind these guys about the, not just the, the probability of affliction, but the necessity of affliction. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says that no one, Paul says Timothy's going to be there to encourage and strengthen you, that no one should be shaken. You shouldn't be shaken by these afflictions, by the difficulties that they're going through. For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. Did you see that? We're appointed to this. This is God's plan that we go through this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it, just as it happened and you know. See, guys, this is what the Scripture teaches. Jesus said this in John 16, Jesus said, I told you all this so that you would have peace in me. Here on earth you're going to have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Amen. Jesus told us we're going to, it's going to be difficult. It's interesting, when Peter writes to, to those that are suffering, he says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though some strange things were happening. Isn't that what we do? We go through something difficult as Christians. We go, God, I don't understand. Why is this happening? And you know what God says to us? Oh, I, I feel for you. It's hard. I, I get it. I have compassion. But why are you surprised? You're a Jesus follower. Why are you surprised that it's going to be difficult? I'll tell you why we're surprised. Because people don't tell us this. Because we want in our Western church life, we want it to be easy and comfortable. But it's not. It's joyous. It's, it's a peace, it's full of peace, it's full of purpose, it's hopeful, but it ain't easy. And it's never going to be. It's not meant to be. We need an ongoing discipleship where we're giving and receiving this kind of discipleship, encouraging each other, let's be established by grace, and let's press on when it's difficult. Almost done, verse 5. Paul says, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your truth. I sent Timothy because I, I needed to know, he says, lest by any means, by some means, he says, the tempter, it's a reference to Satan that we saw earlier, had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Now, so far we've talked about if we're going to develop endurance, we need to be hoping in everlasting love <clears throat> and we need to be receiving ongoing discipleship. But also, listen, this is important. Don't miss this, Okay. This is important. We also need to be recognizing satanic interference. So, so there's two mistakes that we make as Bible-believing Christians. One is to blame everything on the devil. The devil made me do it. It's not my fault. So every temptation we go, oh, that's a demon of this or a spirit of that. Well, no, it's just our sinful flesh. We just want things we shouldn't want. But the other mistake we make, and sometimes we as people that take, a, take a, a big responsibility, take personal responsibility for our sinfulness, sometimes we forget that we have an enemy who hates us. Paul talks about, he, he uses this phrase in verse 18 of chapter 2, he says, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. Now let me be really clear, and I'm going to be really quick about this. We need to understand who he's referring to as Satan here, Okay? who he's talking about. Now, when, when the scripture uses the term Satan, or in Hebrew it's the Satan, uh, it really just means the adversary or the opponent. But it's, it's used most of the time in reference to, uh, or in parallel to the phrase the devil, which literally just means slanderer, 
or serpent of old. And it's interesting because if you look at, you look at this later, Revelation chapter 12, you see this kind of description of Satan, of the devil, as one being thrown from heaven. And when he's thrown from heaven, he's judged for his exalting himself before God. What happens is a third of the angelic beings go with him. And they're what we now call demons. Now Jesus seemed to affirm this, that God had judged Satan and those angels and cast them out of heaven. You can read about that in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. But also, listen, we know that this Satan, this, this creature, this evil creature, uh, was the one who was tempting Jesus right after Jesus was baptized. We read about that in Mark chapter 4, or Matthew chapter 4, as well as other places. And so what we see is, we, we don't know everything about angels or demons, because the Bible is, only gives us certain bits of information. But we look at how Jesus dealt with these things, or how he experienced these things, and it gives us an idea about what Paul's referring to here as Satan hindered him. So we also know that Jesus describes Satan as a murderer, a thief, and maybe most important to understand, a liar. This is what he does. Now at this point, I think it's really important that I say to you, you need to recognize that God is the only uncreated one. God is the eternal God. He has always existed. He will always exist. He never changes. Satan, or as he was possibly called before, Lucifer, is a created being. So don't think God and his opposite Satan. Think God creates angels with a hierarchy. The archangels, top angels, were probably Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. Of those top angels, Lucifer gets a bit cocky, thinks, hey, I think I'm, I can be like the Most High God. And when that comes in his heart, God says, that is not acceptable. Boom. Flicks him out of heaven, and a third of the angels follow him, and they become evil spirits, demons. They're rebellious. There's no redemption for them. Now, understanding this, we need to know that um, Jesus demonstrated an ultimate authority over demons. We see this all throughout the Gospels. You can read about that specifically in Luke chapter 4, verse 36. Something that nobody had ever seen before. Jesus showed constant authority or, or ultimate authority over them. And lastly, we need to understand this. According to Revelation chapter 20 and Matthew 25, Jesus' own words, Satan, demons, and those who believe Satan is in demons, they're going to be eternally judged. It's not a happy thing. It's hard to think about this, but it's important. You need to know this. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41, he talks about how hell was created for the devil and his angels. So there was not redemption for them, but there is redemption for us if we ignore his lies and we believe the truth. This is really important. Because this is what the enemy does. Don't think of a guy in a sort of a red suit with a tail and a pitchfork, you know. That's not Satan. He, he disguises himself, Paul says, as an angel of light. He's beautiful and attractive and seductive and Someone we'd want to be friends with. But he's a liar. And he's a murderer. And he's a thief. Now, the, the reality is, he knows his time is short. He knows that his judgment's coming. So guess what he wants to do? He wants to take as many people within the hell as he can. And he's doing a pretty good job. Make him fight for a living. <laughs> fight against what he has to do. See, now what Paul's talking about here is he saying, listen, I'm concerned because he knows there is this demonic being, this, this wicked, angelic, spiritual being and his host of cohorts that want to keep us blind to the gospel, away from God. 
Now, it's important for us to recognize because here's the thing about Satan. He's less than what we assume he is. He's not equal to God. But he's much more than you or I are. Think about it. If one archangel, according to the Old Testament, wiped out 185,000 human beings in one night, what can one demon do to you by yourself? I'm not saying that to get scared, but I'm saying that because sometimes we can hear about this, especially, I don't know, maybe, maybe guys are more prone to this than girls, I don't know. But I remember when I first was kind of learning about the, the spiritual realm and demons and angels, I remember thinking, oh yeah, I, I, can, I can sense that. I'll take them on. I'll take them on, because I was a bit of a scrapper. What an idiot. <laughs> if one would have manifested, I would have died of a heart attack at 18 years old. I mean, the truth is, these beings are far beyond our ability to control. The good news is Jesus has all ultimate authority over them. The point is this. We need to recognize there's something real here, even if there's a mystery to it. Because one of the things the enemy loves to do, he doesn't kind of show up and manifest himself, but that can happen. There can be something called demon possession, but that's another Bible study. But what he usually does is just simply lie. He lies to us. And the trick, he's so good at it, we think it's us telling us this. He lies to us. My friend Rob Dingman likes to say, there's three voices in my head. One's God, one's the devil, one's me, but they all sound like me. He's a liar. And what Paul's writing this about, the reason he's writing this, he's saying, listen, you need to recognize there's a liar. Here's a tempter. In the same way he was trying to tempt Jesus away from obedience to the Father, he's trying to tempt you away from faith in Jesus. That's what he wants to do. It's interesting, too, if you go back to verse 18, Paul says specifically, I wanted to come back to you. I love you guys, you believers in Thessalonica. I wanted to be with you, but what happened? Satan hindered it. Why? Because one of the biggest goals that Satan has is to hinder gospel-centered relationships. You ever wonder why it's so stinking hard to get to church on a Sunday morning? Your kids are demon-possessed, it feels like, on Sunday morning, doesn't it? You have kids. It feels like everything is, just, is saying, don't go. Why? Because this is the place where we develop gospel-centered relationships. Why is it that you could find time to be on some sort of sports team or some sort of social activity in the week, but man, making time for a house group just seems impossible. Partly because you have an enemy who doesn't want you to have gospel-centered relationships. Do you understand this? I'm not saying you don't have a part to play. I'm not saying you're, you're guiltless. It's just the devil. I'm saying, no, he wants to keep you away from these relationships. And then those of you who are making the effort to have those gospel-centered relationships, have you noticed how stinking hard it is to love other Christians? Doesn't it seem like the people that you, friendships you have that were people that aren't Christians somehow just seem easier sometimes? Why? Because the enemy wants to come against those things. This is why it's so hard to endure with church because we go to church and we have these expectations and we are disappointed. That's a good thing. We're not there yet. See, this is why we have these exhortations in Scripture like in Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul writes, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Later on in the same chapter, he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. What does that tell you? It tells you relationships between Christians are going to require patience. You're going to have to bear with people that drive you nuts. You're going to have to be kind and compassionate because they're going to sin against you and you're going to have to forgive them no matter how bad it is. Why? Because Christ forgave you. Who wants to stop that from happening? 
Could it be uh, perhaps Satan? He does. Again, I'm not saying that it's not just our sinful nature also that keeps us from this. But he loves to encourage our sinful nature. We need to be aware of this stuff. Quickly, I want to show you guys some scriptures from Genesis chapter 3. Just so you know, this is exactly the, the, the way the enemy works. Because guys, if we're going to endure with each other and help each other endure, we're going to have to recognize even though he's a mystery, we don't understand about demons and angels completely, there's this reality, supernatural, spiritual resistance to just walking with God. Listen, this is when man has, is about to fall. This is how man fell away from a relationship with God because of Satan's interference. Listen, Genesis chapter 3 says, Now the serpent, that's the serpent of old, speaking of another name for Satan, the serpent was cunning, or more cunning, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, that's Eve, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the, the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor even touch it, lest you die. She added the touch it bit, in case you didn't know. See, this is the work of the enemy. Satan seeks to confuse us about God's word. This is why one of the lies the enemy tells you on a Sunday morning is, okay, John, we know this. We don't need to hear this again. Yes, you do. You need to hear it over and over and over again, and so do I. Because we have an enemy who lies and tries to take it away. It goes on to say in Genesis chapter 3, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now God had said, if you eat this, you're going to die. And he says, no, you're not going to die. He says, for God knows that in that day your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, it's interesting. If you were to read the whole thing, we're not going to today. There's a half-truth in this. But what he's doing is Satan likes to contradict or twist God's word so he can blaspheme God's character. God's keeping something back from you. See, you could be just like him and he doesn't want any competition. That was a lie, an utter lie. None can be like God. God made us in his image so that we could know him. We have a unique capacity among all of creation to know God. But we can't be like him. Not like this. Not like he's, the Satan's indicating. So what happens? He continues in verse, uh, chapter 3 of Genesis. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree, and a tree dis, uh, made... I'm sorry, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and uh, made themselves covering. And if you go on, you know that they hid themselves from God. See, they thought our eyes are going to be opened, and we're going to be on the same level of God. What happened? Their eyes were opened. They understood good and evil. You know what they understood? God's good and we are now evil. Oh no. And, and so they went and they hid and tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. Which, by the way, is what all religion is, is fig leaves. Christianity is not about fig leaves. Christianity is about God covering us in the righteousness of his own son. So that we can come to him perfectly free. See, Satan lies to leave us vulnerable and to get us to hide from God's presence. He seeks to take us away from God. Listen, 
if we're going to endure, we have to recognize these things. We have to recognize we have an everlasting love that we can hope in. We have to recognize we have an ongoing need for discipleship. And we have to recognize we have an enemy that wants to keep us from God. Guys, this is what we need if we're going to endure. Let's pray this in. Father, I pray that you would help us to heed this. Father, I pray for anyone here who's struggling to endure, who is just about to give up. Lord, may they believe afresh that they are loved with an everlasting love, that you're not giving up on them. Lord, may they just affirm their faith in you. Lord, may they receive whatever they need to keep walking. And we pray you would bind the enemy from the lies. Will you expose him and kick him away from those in that vulnerable place? And Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know the Lord Jesus as Savior, as King of Kings. Lord, would you again rebuke Satan and take the blinders off their eyes, that they would get it, that the penny would drop and they would know it's Jesus I have to trust. It's his finished work I have to put my faith in. It's his resurrection that guarantees me eternal life. Would you show them that? And Father, would you help us to press on in our relationships with one another? Would you help us help each other? Lord, we need each other so bad. Thank you, Lord, that when we see you face to face, no one's going to be disappointed. We're all going to say, Lord, you are so worth it. Please, Lord, I pray you would do this. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone says, amen. amen.